Welcome to Afternoon Light, the podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Georgina Downer and I'm the host of Afternoon Light and the CEO of the Robert Menzies Institute. The Institute is a Prime Ministerial Library and Museum devoted to upholding the legacy and vision of Sir Robert Menzies, Australia's longest serving Prime Minister. On Afternoon Light, we explore contemporary issues relevant to Sir Robert's life and legacy with leading thinkers from around the world. Thank you for joining us today. Hello and on today's Afternoon Light podcast, I am joined by Peter Curti, who is the Director in the Culture, Prosperity and Civil Society Program at the Centre for Independent Studies. Welcome to the Afternoon Light podcast, Peter. Thank you, Georgina. Great pleasure to be with you. Uh, It's fabulous to have you on the podcast. And today we're going to talk about a report you've just released, Raging Against the Past, Guilt, Justice and the Post-Colonial Reformation, which I read with great interest. It's a a fascinating report and it, it illuminates some of the big issues we are facing broadly across the world, but particularly for me sitting here on a university campus, the issues that relate to uh, cancel culture, tearing down structures, statues, monuments, but also the the relationship that, that we have today with our history and historical figures. So tell me about your overarching thesis, Peter, when you wrote this report. Well, a few years ago, we had a series of campaigns across Australia, certainly in, in Sydney, um, where statues um, or memorials commemorating people who helped found Australia um, were destroyed or vandalised. And this was driven by, I mean, we call it cancel culture, but what lies behind cancel culture is something co- called post-colonial theory, which is determined to eradicate all traces of colonialism in Australia. So any figure who's associated with the colonisation of the country, um, such as Captain James Cook, uh, Governor Lachlan Macquarie, the Governor of New South Wales, or figures, contemporary figures, including John Howard and Tony Abbott, who are seen to represent that ongoing uh, colonisation, post-colonial theory wants to remove them, wants to eradicate them, and wants to, I think, rewrite uh, Australia's identity. And it does, it can't rewrite its history, but it can eradicate its history to rewrite its identity. And my concern is that by doing that, we actually really do undermine our sense of, uh, of Australia as a, as, a, as a nation. We, under, we undermine our sense of national identity. And because the, the post-colonial theory and its manifestations in, 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 the, in this particular form in cancel culture would have us believe that we are a systemically bigoted and racist country. I think it actually drives divisions between communities in our society. And after all, Australia is one of the most successful multicultural uh, societies in the world. I mean, we have our tensions and we have our differences and our difficulties, sure. But we are a very harmonious society. And I think that one of the dangers of post-colonial theory and this determination to tear down, to erase, to eradicate, to rewrite, is that it it sows seeds of division uh, amongst us, which I think in the long term are very harmful. Indeed, indeed. Uh, A united society, even if we don't all agree on 
how we were founded and you know how we should be run, but a generally united society around a common understanding of of values and acceptance of values and a common understanding of our history and where we've come from um, is incredibly important and um, it, for for social cohesion. Tell me, Peter, where did post-colonial theory come from then it's it's obviously not come out of a vacuum it didn't just start a few years ago when Australia Day started getting attacked and Captain Cook's statue started getting defaced where where's this all come from it's a really good question because in fact it's got a very long period of gestation um and really begins I think in 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 earnest in the post-war years with big changes in the way in which countries started to think of themselves and to see themselves uh, after the end of the Second World War. And uh, Britain in particular went through a, a really significant period of, uh, of dismantling its empire and as countries claimed independence and forged new identities of their own. So there grew this intellectual program to, uh, to address the legacy of colonialism. Now, interestingly enough, I think a lot of this happened on American university campuses. That's where it started. But it has its roots in, in European intellectual, uh, intellectual life. Uh, but it was an attempt to, to deal with the consequences of colonialism. Of course, France had a colony, the, the Netherlands, the Dutch had a colony, had, colony, uh, had an empire rather, uh, and the British had an empire. And Australia was part of that. Empire and and even after federation, we remained part of the empire and then became part of the Commonwealth. Uh, so it's it it had its. I think it really started to gain traction in the immediate post-war years as um, the the world started to come to terms with the with the consequence of the Second World War. But it got a boost from particularly some particularly prominent intellectuals and one of the most prominent was Edward Said um, who wrote uh, a, a very famous book called um, uh, Orientalism in which he really argued in a nutshell he argued that that the the West looked down upon the East and used Western ways of knowing as a form of domination of Eastern ways of knowing and he argued that the Western ways of knowing needed to be shedded it needed to be shed, and that we they that that different forms of knowing needed to be embraced, and then this evolved uh, into what's become known as critical theory, which is a complex and multifaceted thing, and finds its uh, you know it finds critical theory uh, it lies behind a number of uh, intellectual movements that we we are confronted with at the moment. For example. Um, Transgender ideology is informed by critical theory, but we'll just keep. If I can just keep to post-colonial theory, uh, critical theory had this I- idea uh, that, uh, or its gov- its governing principle is that uh, that knowledge is a form of oppression, mm. and that it and that truth is not objective. That truth is discovered. It's 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 lived, and so we can see that the consequences of of, of critical theory as it emerged in post-colonial theory, one of the consequences is that our understanding of what is objectively true is challenged because it's seen as sort of a, a, an imposition of a hegemonic Western way of knowing and that they, those systems of knowledge, because they're oppressive, need to be dismantled. It's quite esoteric in some ways, but it has its practical implications in very 
immediate way, such as the tearing down of statues and the attempt to rewrite Australian history to 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 uh, smear the legacy of significant people, including uh, Robert Menzies, of course, uh, whom you commemorate in the uh, the Robert Menzies Institute, and and I think that we see the practical outworkings of of this in in very immediate ways. But what lies behind it is quite a deep and and well established intellectual um, stream, intellectual current. And and Peter, what is the the agenda then of <laughs> post colonialism? It's trying to contest history as it is written and and tear it down but what's the end point then what's the what what are they seeking well the first thing to remember is that post-colonial theory is obsessed with power as i've said it's obsessed with oppression and it's obsessed with the primacy of lived experience so it really want it it really wants to deal uh, and emphasize the, the the authenticity of individual experience and as such, as I've said, it rejects an ordinary understanding of truth because truth is arrived at not by an objective determination of knowledge but by lived experience. Mm. So it's a revisionist and, it, in my view, it's an impoverished form of historical inquiry. And there are two real problems that I think post-colonial theory and this what I've called this post-colonial reformation um, present to us. The first is that there is a burden of guilt that it imposes that can never be discharged. Today's generation of Australians will always bear a moral responsibility for deeds perpetrated in an earlier age of our history. Uh, And that particularly concerns relationships with the Indigenous people of this country. Um, And I think that post-colonial theory would have contemporary Australians bear a moral responsibility, they bear a burden of guilt for whatever happened between the settlers, the first settlers of this country and indigenous communities. The second problem, in addition to the burden of guilt, is that in trying to redress those allegedly immoral actions, and I'll come back to that point about allegedly immoral actions, but in order to, in in, in attempt to address those actions, it sets a standard of justice, which I argue it's impossible for Australians to attain. It's, it it's sets a utopian ideal that we can never, we can never attain. And so we are always striving for something, for, for a goal that we can never reach. Now, I'll come back to that point, if I may, about alleged immoral actions because I do not deny and and nobody really denies that history does confront contemporary Australians with events and actions that need to be considered and addressed. There are injustices that were perpetrated in the past. We need to address those. Um, The ongoing plight of Indigenous people in remote communities, for example, is something that we that we, we do still need to be very um, aware of and alert to and attentive to. But those are the situations that arise from our history that confront us today, and we need to be concerned with those today. It's not about whitewashing the past. It's not about saying, well, everything in the past was perfect. It's about recognising that there were issues in the past. There were bad things done in the past. The responsibility that we have today as contemporary Australians 
is to ensure that we strive for the, the, the most just society that we can achieve, the most just society that we can, we can forge and build without trying to attain this unobtainable standard that is beyond our reach. Yeah, it's an extraordinary claim to uh, to be seeking a sort of perfect society that discounts the truths of history. I wanted to understand too, Peter, when you look at history, we're relying uh, so much on, on books, but, you know, we can look at monuments and, and buildings and, you know, artefacts to, to understand how people lived, what they thought, but... How do post-colonialists, you know, when the these sort of the lived experience is so important, how do they how do they derive insights when the people they're writing and talking about aren't alive? I mean, I mean, tell me. So you can't rely on the history books that have been written by people who you don't agree with, and you can't rely on the artifacts that have been created by people who you don't agree with. So who do you who do you go to then? For your for well, your insights, or is it just yeah, all I mean, about a, about looking back at what what's happened and just um, applying your sort of twenty twenty first century values to a nineteenth eighteenth century situation? I think you put your finger on the problem, on the heart of the problem, because the discipline of history and the practice of the discipline of history. Um, as we know it, is regarded by post-colonial theorists as itself a Western and therefore an oppressive construct. Right. And the, 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 the discipline of history itself gets called into question. Uh, a few days ago, I had a, uh, a conversation in a webinar with the British jurist and historian, Jonathan Sumption, and we talked about this business of, of judging the past of trying to rewrite history and Sumption made the point that our history is the history that we've got and that if we do not attend to the, the records that we have, if we do not take seriously the legacy that we have and attempt to rewrite and reinterpret and, and reinvent, we'll actually undermine everything that we stand mm. for. And I think Sumption's right, putting his position to my own words, but that he he would say, we have the history that we have. Now we have to make sure that we do not judge the past by our standards today, because that assumes that our own moral standards are somehow more elevated or more enlightened than those of our forebears, which, I, which and I think he's right, is, is not true. Um, but we need to, as I've said before, address the issues that we are confronted with today and not attempt to undermine the discipline of history by rewriting it or casting it in different terms. Yeah, but I think there's, I mean, something Menzies wrote a lot about, spoke a lot about, was this sense of of progress, that, that history is, it gives you great stimulus for um, future reform and for for national progress and uh, there's a, a wonderful quote I have here from a speech he gave at Newington College in 1961 
I'm an immense believer in continuity. I'm not a believer in looking at the past because it is dead, but looking at the past because it is living. Looking at the past because it reminds us that we are in the great procession of life. Any man who walked in the procession of life and who aims at doing anything in life, who is unaware of what went before him, unaware of the great truths that have come down to him, is a foolish man. He is essentially a short-sighted man. Uh, and again, that's the emphasis on, on great truths. I mean, there is truth. There, there are things that, that happened and uh, you, you look at your, your place in, in the world as, as part of a, of a progression and what's come before you is important to inform how you, the values you have today uh, were created and, and nutted out over centuries, how the institutions that support your way of life evolved and, and why they evolved in the way they did and, you know, the importance of checks and balances to ensure, a, in our case, a, a flourishing democracy. But, but those things didn't happen in a vacuum. Um, those things happened through a progression of, of debates, you know, life and death battles over, over some of our institutions and, and nation building. And the ways our society is developed when it comes to how we deliver education, security... Healthcare, the welfare state, uh, private em- role of private enterprise—all those things are battled out through history to get us to where we are today. So, it's important too to to reflect back on history um, to inform us of our status today, isn't it, Peter? It's very important, and I think that Robert Menzies was absolutely right. And. In, in identifying the importance of continuity, the importance of tradition, um, and not in a way that, that binds us or it restricts us, but in a way that informs us yeah. of the people that we are and how we came to be the people that we are. And the position that he set out in that really rather good quote that you've just read um, is directly countermanded by post-colonial theory that does not want to honour the past. It wants to tear it down. It does not want to um, learn from history, but rather to rewrite history because it considers so much of what's happened in the past immoral uh, and, and therefore worthless. And I think a properly conservative approach to history and to the development of a society is to honour those who've gone before, to learn from them, to learn from, from their mistakes and to see how the, the, the sense of national identity, the sense of social identity and community identity is something that is forged over time to which we contribute as will, as have our forebears and as will those who come after us, which is a very much a, an Edmund Burke idea uh, about a continuity between the past, the present and the future. Post-colonial theory wants to tear that down and judges the past as wholly uh, immoral. Actions in the past are wholly immoral um, and therefore need to be uh, need to be dismantled. We can't, they would say, we can't talk about truth. We can't make claims about the past that are based on uh, on, on oppressive, hegemonic ways of, of knowing. We have to honour lived experience. We have to honour those whose voices are not heard. You can see where that leads. It, sub, it subverts almost every, every, 
principle, every norm of Western society, of Western civilization that we that we stand for. And that's the danger. It's not saying that people in the past never did anything bad. It's not saying that at all. It's what it is, what what those who need to resist colonial theory uh, should understand is that we have to learn from mistakes in the past and ensure that either they are corrected or they are not repeated, but that we learn from them. And I think this sense of um, of continuity that Menzies referred to in that speech at Newington College is extremely important and is one of the reasons why I think post-colonial theory and this zealous reformation that, that it, theory activists pursue is so dangerous. I wondered if we could chat about some of the, the, the case studies that we've observed over the last few years. Of course, um, in the Australian context, we have Australia Day and the attacks on Australia Day and astra- attacks on, on monuments that, that um, reflect what we are celebrating on Australia Day, the particular events that, that happened on the 26th of January, uh, and monuments to the key figures there. But, but um, you were saying this started really on American campuses particularly uh, and and of course they've had through the Black Lives Matter movement there's been a, a, an enormous amount of statues, confederate statues that have been torn down which you know and a lot of this is linked to the the, the racial tensions that have been um, in, in America for for many many decades centuries even but but can you can you tell me about those those incidents and what the the activists would trying to achieve and whether whether it's worked in the context of the United States well the United States I think is a, is a, a particularly interesting and difficult case because it does have a legacy of slavery that Australia just does not have whatever the tensions that have been in in our nation between different communities we have not had that legacy of systemic slavery uh, and i think that has that that in, is still in many ways a, an open wound uh, in, in american society but i think that slavery does not now exist in the united states and i think one of the problems with campaigners in the black lives matter movement for example one of the problems in the campaign is that they would have today's generation continue to bear guilt for for the actions of those who who endorsed or made use of uh, the slave trade uh, and recently there's been a move to sue for reparations that descendants of slaves want reparations from uh, descendants of slave owners and that in some ways well you know it's understandable in one way but in another sense it's quite absurd because you have reparations to address a wrong that has been perpetrated now there there is no sense in which the descendants of slaves can be can be recompensed for the actions of descendants of owners because no wrong has been done by the descendants of owners to the descendants of slaves. No, but it has a moral. It has a moral force that that can be quite compelling. But when we stop to think about what's actually involved here, that's it, it shows that it, it, it's not just a. It's not just a. It doesn't just corrupt our sense of what a, an immoral action 
really is. I think it cor- it corrupts our sense of justice, which is why I say that one of the things that post-colonial theory advocates is this unattainable sense of justice. You can never discharge the burden of guilt, and the standard of justice that they that they seek to attain is unattainable. It can never be attained. And I think the example of reparations, this campaign, I don't know where it'll go, but this campaign of reparations in 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 the US is an example of that. Um, but slavery is is the stain that has also marked these debates in Britain as well. Yes. And there have been some prominent cases. There was Edward Colston, who was a benefactor of Bristol, but who made money out of the slave trade. Um, and at Jesus College, Cambridge, there's a memorial to Tobias Rustat, who was a generous benefactor of the college, but who made money from from the slave trade. And there have been concerted campaigns. Uh, in the case of Colston, uh, the campaign was successful to tear down the statue. And the jury um, that heard the trial of those who tore down the statue acquitted the, the so-called Colston Four. So they walked free. Um, the Rustat campaigners have not been quite so successful. They're the, um, the, the church court that had to hear this case ruled that the memorial needed to stay in the chapel but there there are now moves to appeal that but the point about colston and and rustat in 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 the uk is that they had an association with slavery um with with a trade that at the time was lawful it it had a wide number of participants it was deemed by many at the time as immoral, even though it was lawful. And Britain was one; it was at the forefront of the campaign to abolish the slave trade. And this was brought about finally by the efforts of William Wilberforce. So it was. There were people at the time who who questioned the morality of it, but it was it was lawful and it was an established part of society. And I think the trouble is that whilst nobody endorses slavery today or the slave trade, I mean nobody that I know of certainly endorses the slave trade today. Um, what we are doing is we're judging the entire life of somebody, Colston or Rustat, by their involvement in one particular economic activity or by one aspect of their lives. And we are, we are, we are smearing the whole because of an element in, in, in their actions. And I, this is again, part of the wider problem of post-colonial theory. It, it, it paints with a very broad brush. There is a burden of guilt that can never be discharged. There is a stain that can never be eradicated. There is, a, there is an injustice that can never be corrected. And what we're doing effectively is saying that our standards today are the best. They're the right ones. They're the, they, they are the ones that need to prevail. And we will use those standards those moral standards to judge the actions of everybody in the past. And I think that that's an ahistorical thing to do, actually. And I think that's not how the discipline of history needs to be conducted. So that's a slightly wide-ranging answer to your question. Um, but but it, it's manifested in the US in a particular way. It's manifested in, in, in Britain, which had an association with the slave trade. It's manifested in Australia because of our relations with Indigenous people, and that's at the heart of the of the argument about Australia Day that that we rehearse every year without fail. Yes, indeed. Before we come to Australia Day, which I'm I'm really keen to to talk about more, I was recently in Oxford and talking to some academics there, and and the the issue of 
sack Rhodes, you know, eradicate the legacy and, and monuments to Cecil Rhodes, the great British philanthropist and obviously um, the, the, the benefactor of the Rhodes Scholarships, of which many, many great Australians uh, are recipients. It was interesting speaking to these people. They did say the vigour at the of the of the Sack Roads campaign and and you know getting rid of of these monuments to other figures like Rustat had toned down quite a bit uh, in the last year or so, which which I thought was very interesting. And there seemed to be a bit more of a an acceptance that these statues should stay because you can't you can't pretend that these figures weren't figures of history and what they did, that they did bad things. They did things that by 21st century standards we think are morally reprehensible, absolutely. I mean, as you say, no one thinks the slave trade was a good thing. It's a you know, complete um, abrogation of people's individual dignity and human rights. But the, these, these figures did exist and they do, they, in actual fact, the statues are even more important to spark a conversation about the, the, the procession of history, the progress of history and how it has developed. So I, I want to um, hear your views, Peter, on we keep these statues, say, of, of Cecil Rhodes, of Rustat in the, in the chapel at Jesus College, but is there something else we should be adding to them to contextualise them so that we don't, we don't also brush over the, the, the difficulties of their story, of their, of their legacy? I think in in some ways, actually, the existence of the statues is part of that, is part of that recollection. Yeah. It's part of that way of remembering. So, um, I mean, the statue of Colston, I think, is now in a museum in Bristol, um, which is not really quite the place where it probably ought to be, but it, it, it's there. The statue of Rhodes uh, remains. The, the, for now, the, the, the memorial to Rustat remains. And I think it's a reminder to us that people from another generation saw the world in different ways and responded to the world around them in ways that we would not now respond today. Um, And that seems to me to be a much more balanced approach to history. One of the um, critics of of the... the anti-Rhodes campaign, the Rhodes Must Fall campaign in Oxford, or is the ethicist, Nigel Bigger. And he said that the the truth about the past and the duty to do justice to the past is of no interest to the activists who want to tear down Rhodes. History is merely an armory, he says, from which to draw politically useful weapons. Mm. And I think that to keep statues in place is a way of doing justice to the past and remembering that that the, the the society we live in is one that was forged by people from another generation. I mean, it's it's it's. I mean, it's so simplistic as almost not to be to warrant saying, but it needs to be said. But the society we live in was formed from the the actions, the decisions, the points of view, the the the, 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 the political and economic decisions made by people in the past that we might not make today but nonetheless that's the history that we have the the rustad case is an interesting one because that's just been determined by an ecclesiastical court and it had to go to an ecclesiastical court because you said it's in a chapel 
Um, and the deputy chancellor who heard the case, a chap called David Hodge, QC, uh, who, who denied the application to remove the memorial, said that the memorial was not to his views about slavery, but to a memorial to Rustat's philanthropy. And Hodge said this, he said, from a Christian perspective, every memorial is a memorial to a sinner. And by extension, every statue is a memorial to a flawed, incomplete human being. Mm. And to remove a statue would somehow suggest that we could, there is this, as, as I've said before, you know, there's this unattainable ideal that we can attain that is actually unattainable. So I think the, the presence of statues, I mean, in London, Nelson, Horatio Nelson sits at the top of um, Nelson's column in Trafalgar Square. Well, he, I mean, Nelson was a peculiar character in many ways. Would we tear Nelson down because of what he did? Uh, don't give I, I them don't any ideas, Peter. That's <laughs> a long, he's a long way up actually, with a lot of tearing down to, to, get, to, to get to the top of the Yeah, column. Colston was a bit I mean, easier. Think, he was right by the river, wasn't he? He <laughs> was, he was. He was. <laughs> But there is a point about statues that I, I would like to make because I think sometimes statues do need to come down. And we've seen this in our own day when um, tyrannies are overthrown. So statues of Saddam Hussein, most famously, mm. were torn down when his regime was toppled after the fall of communism. In, um, and, and the collapse of the Berlin Wall in 89-91, we saw statues uh, of Lenin being torn down. And I think in, those, in, those sense, in that sense, I mean, I'm not, I'm not endorsing vandalism, but I'm, I do think that, in a sense, the, 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 the toppling of statues in those circumstances represents a victory of... Um, a victory of hope and a, the ending of a tyranny and the determination to, uh, to, to live in another era, to open a new era and to, to mark the ending of the old. We don't see statues of Hitler. We don't see statues of Himmler or Goering. Well, Germany is an interesting case, though, isn't it, Peter? Because they have, they have sought to eradicate the Nazi legacy from German society, a sort of real denazification of, of German society and there's legislation around what you can display and what you can say, um, which you know, is, a, is a context, obviously, that is not familiar to Australia. Um, and, the, of course, the, the absolutely appalling legacy of Hitler's Nazi Germany and um, the the destruction of the lives of six million Jewish people throughout Europe. You can absolutely understand the the response in the German context to that to that legacy. But to play devil's advocate here, uh, someone who has um, come from a family whose ancestry was affected by slavery, they look at say the Colston statue in Bristol or the the Rustat memorial in in the chapel at Jesus College or the the statue of Cecil Rhodes at Oriel College in Oxford and they say you speak to me of someone who was took part in the 
um, you know, stealing of my relatives from from Africa and uh, putting them into to slavery, abhorrent conditions, you know, sexual abuse, uh, you know, and the like. Do, do they not then have a cause to to not want to see those those images, those those monuments? I mean, I don't necessarily disagree with you that the people of Iraq liberated from dictatorship of Saddam Hussein didn't want to see Saddam's face anymore, but they also can't avoid the fact that Saddam Hussein was their president for many years. And um, actually, to this very day, there are people who worked with Saddam Hussein's administration who continue to exist in society. So, you know, we, we, where, do you, where do you draw the line? Where it seems like there's a tension here between statues that, that should stay and statues that, that are okay to go. Shouldn't we have a, a consistent approach that just statues can stay? All statues have to go. I mean. <laughs> well, actually, I think the inconsistency is more apparent than real. There. Okay. Um, let's just start with, with, with Saddam Hussein. The statue statues of Saddam Hussein were toppled. The toppling represented the toppling of a regime. It wasn't removing a memorial to something bad that had happened in the past. The removal of that of those statues represented the ending of a regime now. And I think that was quite distinctive. And I think that I'm speculating, but let's suppose that one day the people of North Korea are liberated. It would not be inconceivable that the statues to the founders of North Korea that are now um, deemed worthy of veneration by the regime there would be torn down. And they'd be torn down because they would represent the ending of something. So that's, that's Iraq. So we'll come back to Germany for a moment before coming to, to slavery. I think that the, you're right, that Germany is a very particular um, example. And I think that the removal of statues, memorials, the laws outlying the display of Nazi symbols are not an attempt to eradicate the past. They arise from a very determined and heart-searching attempt by, first of all, the people of West Germany and then the people of Germany over many years to address this terrible, terrible thing that happened. So I think the removal of statues, the eradication of memorials, the legislation that that forbids the displaying of symbols is actually an attempt not to deny the past but to come to terms with the past. And I think the Germans are still doing this in, in many ways. Can I just come, come to slavery? Just the example of slavery. Now, so somebody walking down Oxford High Street past Oriel College and they see a statue there. Of, of, of Cecil Rhodes. Well, first of all, if they are a student at the University of Oxford, they are living a massively privileged life, whatever they're doing there. They are living a massively privileged life and in many, in many ways ought to be grateful for the opportunity that, that has been afforded them to, to be there. If they feel so strongly about the, the toxicity of the past, then they should resign from the university and go somewhere else. If, it's very hard to, to understand or to imagine how somebody today, whoever they are, looking at a statue of, of Rhodes, or if they're in Bristol or if they're in, in, in Cambridge, I mean, these are two, we're talking about two very, very distinguished uh, universities which have a very, very privileged and elite group of students and academics. It's hard to imagine how those lives, the lives of people looking at those statues today, have been harmed or affected in an adverse way 
by looking at those, by, by, by the slave trade. I mean, their, their lives are immensely privileged. So what, what's the score that they want to settle? What's the, what's the beef, as it were, that they want to address? I was just trying to um, unpack this a bit more. So your point is that if you are uh, tearing down statues and, and you know, changing laws around what symbols can be displayed, say in the case of uh, post, post-World War II Germany, say in the case of, of Iraq post-Saddam, that that is okay if it is in the moment, Basically, it's part of uh, regime change or, or reparations for atrocities, crimes that have been committed by people who are who are present. But if we are talking about figures like Rhodes, who you know didn't he didn't stand for slavery? He was a he was a businessman, wasn't he? Uh, and philanthropist. So the statue was erected because of his philanthropy, because of his commitment to education. Uh, to the to the university and to the scholarship and the opportunities that would afford all those very very bright young people, um, but the 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 monument was erected not because of his economic interests that was part of part of who he was but but actually what we're looking at here is is a monument to someone who who gave an incredible gift and that was centuries ago so that can stay. Because he's not around now, and he's of no no relevance to his 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 descendants. What he did, because you know they can't possibly be responsible for what someone centuries ago did, even if they happen to be related to them. So, is that what divides the your judgment here? I, I think that, that this is a very important point here because you are right that I think that um, when we're addressing as it were, the history of our own time, we're going to view it differently. Yeah. And we're not and, – and I think the perspective that we have is going to be different from uh, the perspective we might adopt if we're trying to judge um, figures in 19th century Britain or 18th century Britain or 17th century Britain. Um, but when it's our own period, our own era um, – I mean, we remember the fall of communism. We, we now, those of us who, who remember that, have a sense of what's going on in Ukraine now. We have a sense of something resurgent that we thought, hoped, believed, prayed had been addressed um, 30 years ago. And now, it's, and now it's back with Avengers. So these are things very much of our own time. And I think that when we are addressing the history of our own time, we can take a particular stand on the way in which we commemorate uh, and memorialise that, that history. I think the the Second World War and the history of Nazi Germany is actually really interesting because as people who were involved with the war uh, are dying, I mean, somebody who was born in 1940 at the beginning of the war, for example, um, would now is now 82. So people who fought in the war are, are dying. Those who were caught up in the horror of the Holocaust uh, are dying. And we see around the world the, the strenuous efforts on the part of, and worthy efforts on the part of the Jewish community to keep the memory of the Holocaust alive and to teach successive generations who know nothing really about it, who had no, whose lives were not touched in any way by the Holocaust, to keep that memory alive 
alive. But it's becoming that that challenge is changing because that period of history is receding from us. Yeah. And those who knew it are gradually dying out and are no longer with us. Those things that happen in our own age, in our own time, and I suppose um, the, the, the war in Iraq is perhaps one of the more vivid examples, that's something that's very different for us because it's part of our, our lived experience and we remember it. And I think the, I mean, I don't think there are any hard and fast rules here. I think it just shows that history is a discipline that needs to be exercised with great care and as, with as much commitment not just to the truth, but a commitment to honest inquiry as possible. And that what post-colonial theory does is seek to, to daub the discipline of history with an ideological whitewash that actually undermines the task of history and, and turns it into, as you know, Nigel Bigger, whom I quoted a moment ago, said, uh, turns it into a political armory rather than as a pursuit of truth. Um, and ultimately a, a pursuit of justice. Yeah, and, and I thought if we could just finish up on a discussion of, a, of Australia Day because that has become an annual political mm. f- fight over, over whether we should have Australia Day on the 26th of January and whether we should rename it, whether we should change our, our day of national celebration to a different day that is more inclusive of our Indigenous forebears. How how did this all begin, and where do you see it? Where do you see the Australia Day debate going, Peter? <laughs> I see the Australia Day debate going on and on and on, and we will have it every year, as regularly as we have Christmas and Easter. Yeah, um, I think that polling shows consistently that Australians, and remember that something like one in four, only one in four Australians are born in Australia. We have a huge number of people from overseas who have either uh, were come from overseas um, or are descended from people who came from overseas. But, so whoever they are, polling shows consistently the overwhelming majority of Australians are in favour of Australia Day because they see it as celebrating something that they think is good. And certainly people who have come from... Um, from much less liberal societies than our own uh, can give great thanks for the freedom that they enjoy in this country and the opportunities they have for their, for, their, for their kids and for their families. So polling shows that Australia Day is, is as popular as ever, but the determination to, to, to change the day and rename it Invasion Day or to get it off the date of the 26th of January is driven by a small number of determined activists who do, in my view, manage to seize um, a lot of the attention uh, and, and, and generate this, this debate every, every year. Um, uh, it was a polling in 2017, for example, that showed that 54% of people, which is not, a, not necessarily a huge majority, but it's a majority of people, were not in favour of changing the date and only 26% did favour. That was 2017 polling. Um, the, the other thing I would say is that when can we find another date? The date of federation? Well, that's the first of January. Well, you don't want to. You we don't already want to got a public, public holiday, holiday then. <laughs> exactly, and you. I, in, and I say this as a migrant to this country, but I I've lived here long enough to know that you don't want to come between Australians 
uh, and I'm an Australian citizen, you don't want to become a, come between Australians and a public holiday. No, you don't. And Australia Day, at where it falls at the moment, is marks in a sort of a ritualistic sense, the end of summer. It's when people get back to work and they, it's the end of the long summer break. And I think for, um, for people who see it as a negative thing, it will always just be bad. <clears throat> for those who rejoice in Australia and for in all that it is, and not its colonial legacy, but the country that it is today and the freedoms that we enjoy today and the prosperity that we enjoy today. For people who, for people for whom those things are important, they would simply say, this is what we are celebrating on, on the day. And there are a lot of Indigenous um, commentators themselves who are in favour. My colleague uh, Warren Mundine of the CIS is somebody who's not in favour of, um, of eradicating Australia Day. It's something that's seen as a particular, in my view, it's seen as a way, it's, it's a stick with which to beat this country. And I think that Australians actually don't like that because most of us have a very good sense of how good life here is here in, in this country. And that the annual, the annual attempt to uh, overturn Australia Day it has become part of our, part of our, ongoing tussle with working out who we are as a country yeah. and what we represent as a society. I think it'll be with us for a long time. I don't think it, it will change. And I think there is, most of us see that there is actually much to celebrate and that Australia Day is one of those days in the year, along with Anzac Day in a different way. But Australia Day is one of those days when we really can give thanks for being Australians and living in the country that we live in. Well, a wonderful note to end on, Peter. Peter Curdy, thank you so much for joining me on the Afternoon Light podcast at the Robert Menzies Institute uh, to talk about some of the, the big issues here on campus, but, but also across, um, across Australia, the United States, uh, UK and, and across the world, I'm sure, grappling with how, how, we, how, we, how we understand our history, how we talk about our history, how we memorialise it. Um, thank you so much, Peter Curdy. The Afternoon Light podcast is brought to you by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. You can find more about the Institute and our podcast at robertmenziesinstitute.org.au. We're also on Twitter, on Facebook and LinkedIn. We look forward to you joining our show next week. Thank you.